Well, this weekend, we've been talking about the one thing you can't do in heaven. Heaven's going to be amazing, awesome, uh, beyond what we can imagine. And we're going to be able to sing better in heaven. Uh, We're going to be able to worship better in heaven. Uh, We're going to be able to obey God, love God better in heaven. We're going to be able to fellowship and love others better in heaven. And Jesus is there. And so we're going to have closer communion with him than ever before. But one thing you can't do better in heaven, in fact, one thing you can't do at all in heaven, is evangelize. There's no non-Christians there. And so our opportunity to evangelize is here on earth. Uh, The reason, or at least a reason, that God doesn't bring us directly to heaven is because while we're here, we have a mission. And this mission is encapsulated in what we call the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here's the mission. Go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. Uh, This is a crystal clear mission for all disciples of Jesus Christ in Scripture. It's crystal clear because it is repeated. You know how many times it's repeated in the Bible? Not twice. Not thrice. Not four times, but five times. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts. You know, when you repeat stuff for emphasis, I think God is trying to tell us something here. Go Go, 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 go into the world and make disciples. This is our mission. So let's talk about it. I want to do two things today. Uh, First, I want to look at John chapter 17, verses 17 to 18. And then secondly, I want to move on to some practical encouragements based off of this text, but also based off of everything that we've talked about this weekend. We're going to get really practical toward the end of this sermon. So turn over to John chapter 17. In this chapter, we find Jesus in prayer. His time has come. His crucifixion is hours away. And after dying and rising and ascending into heaven, his disciples will be left without their leader, without their shepherd, without their head. And so he wants to give them these final instructions. And here we find him praying for strength and for help. For his disciples. We're going to focus on verses 17 to 18 today, but let's start in verse 15 uh, to get a feel for the prayer of Jesus. Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We're going to look at this passage in two parts. First of all, the preparation for the mission, verse 17. And secondly, the sphere of the mission, verse 18. The preparation for the mission, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, this, word is ver- this verse is very simple. The, the power to sanctify, the power to make more holy, more pure, to grow as a Christian is found in God's word, the truth. Read this book. Study this book. Take this book to heart. And you will live this book. And you will live a more holy life. Psalm 119.11, your word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. 2 Timothy 3.16-17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's truth sanctifies. But notice the context of verse 17. A lot of times we quote verse 17 all by itself uh, because it's easy to memorize, it's handy in a lot of counseling situations, but did you ever notice where it's placed? Did you ever notice uh, what, what, what it's surrounded by? It's surrounded by two verses about being in the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Why is it so important for disciples of Jesus Christ to be sanctified in the truth? Because they're going to need it. As they are sent and live their life in the world. Because they're going into the world, but they can't be worldly. They're going into the world, but they must remain unstained by the world, James 1.27. They're going into the world, but they must not be conformed to the world, Romans 12.2. They're going into the world, but... They're going into the world so that they can be salt and light in the world. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. So, uh, Jesus prays that before we go into the world, we'll take this book which sanctifies and that we'll keep it with us at all times so that we walk in holiness, so that we pursue purity even as we walk among those who are in the darkness. And as we enter the sphere of darkness, will shine his lights, be a good testimony, and turn a few heads with the kind of holy lives that we're living. So, now that you have this book that sanctifies, you're ready. Now you're ready to step onto the missions field. You're ready to enter the sphere of the mission. Verse 18, the sphere of the mission, our second point for this text. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The sphere of our mission is the world. In verse 15, Jesus explicitly prays that the Father not take them out of the world, but that he protect them from the evil one during their time in the world. And then verse 18, as we've seen, I have sent them into the world. 
Now, did you catch that parallelism in verse 18? As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Father sends Jesus into the world with a mission, a mission that involved rubbing shoulders with sinners, the outcasts of society, spending time with them, sitting down with them, going to their houses, eating meals with them, even at the ridicule of others, and his mission culminated in dying on the cross for all of these people. In a parallel fashion, Jesus sends us into the world with a mission. A mission that involves rubbing shoulders with sinners, the outcasts of society, spending time with them, sitting down to talk with them, going to their houses, eating meals with them, even at the ridicule of others, sometimes people in the church, and our mission is to open up our mouths and tell them about the one who came on a mission to save the world. So it's this passage where we get that famous and catchy phrase, be in the world but not of it, right? Be in the world but not of it. And normally when we hear that phrase, the emphasis falls on the the latter half, right? Don't be of the world. You got to remain holy. Uh, You you can't partake in worldly things. Uh, You have to remain unstained and distant and alien from the world. But in a lot of ways, I think the the second part of that phrase, in the world, not of the world, is the easier half, to be not of the world. Not partaking in the sinful activities of the world is not all that difficult, especially the more you get plugged into church, right? Because church is great. Uh, The people around you are amazing, and it's very easy to get comfortable around them. And so I really think that for most of us, the harder part is being in the world. Because our tendency is to withdraw from it. It's so comfortable when we live in our own little Christian bubble, where you only hang out with Christians. You only go to the movies with Christians. You only Go out to eat with Christians. You only have Christians over to your place. And you completely isolate and insulate yourself from the world. I mean, when's the last time you had a non-Christian sitting in your living room? Are you stuck in the bubble? And I know it's really nice in there, really comfortable, really fun, and really clean. But what about the mission. And at this point, I do have to admit that in terms of Christian bubbles, uh, I am the foremost sinner. You think you live in the Christian bubble, I far more. Uh, I I struggle with this. Uh, I've always struggled with this. I grew up in a pretty sheltered way. I grew up in church and went to a Christian school from kindergarten through 12th grade. I remember going to UCLA right after this uh, Christian school experience and being shocked with how evil people are. And I still remember what really caught my ear was how much people cussed. Man, you people cuss a lot. And I, I, I just remember thinking, man, we, 
You, you can't cuss. You know, you cuss back at Chinese Christian schools, you get some demerits. <laughs> but here you can cuss freely. And I remember playing basketball with some of my non-Christian friends, including my roommate. And I don't know, I got a little heated and I wanted to trash talk, but it was Christian trash talk. So I said at, at one point, I'm going to kick your butt. <laughs> and they started laughing at me. Like, what's wrong with you? Just, just say it. Just say, kick your... I can't even say it now. I'm too sheltered. <laughs> and so I remember the, the shock of, of being in the world and, and just how comfortable it was to, to be at my Christian Bible study and to, to hang out with Christians all the time, eat with them, go out with them, and do everything with them. Uh, so we can't forget about the mission and we can't forget about pushing ourselves outside of the bubble. Uh, and I, I'm trying hard to, to fight being in the bubble all the time. Uh, and, and so in a lot of ways, this, this is just a testimony for, for myself, from myself, a uh, testimony from inside the bubble. Um, because when, when I'm too much in the, the Christian bubble, I, I notice a couple of things that are unhealthy and contrary to the mission that Christ has given us. First of all, I notice that it becomes very difficult to even talk to non-Christians because we kind of use our own language around here, right? And so I find that I can't even have a normal conversation with a non-Christian. What do you mean you don't know the term justification? Why don't you use the word encouragement more often? It's just very difficult to actually hold a conversation with them because we get so used to the Christianese. And here's where it's, it's even sadder on my end uh, when I'm too much in the bubble. Here's the second negative effect uh, of being too much in the bubble, and that is that I, I really do lose my love for the lost. It's very hard to have genuine compassion for non-Christians when you live your life in the Christian bubble. Now, I'll definitely say that I love the lost, and if you ask me, do you have compassion for the lost? I would say yes, and I hope that I have more, but it's very, very small. You see, when, when there's a, a barrier between you and non-Christians, it's very hard to genuinely love them. I mean, you can give lip service to it, uh, you can say, I love the lost, and I hope that they become Christians, but, but it's only when you, you step outside of that bubble and actually engage with people and become their friends that you can say, I love you. I care about you because you're my friend. And therefore, I am going to tell you this message because it's the only message by which you can be saved. I care about you that much. And so even though it's very difficult to step outside of the bubble, I encourage you guys to do so. We must not flee the world. Jesus sends us right into it. He sends us into the world with a message on our lips and on our heart. He sends us to infiltrate the world with the gospel, uh, the message of a compassionate Savior who laid his life down for his friends. 
Guys, I know church is great. Midweek Bible study is great. Small groups are great. Because that's where we look at the truth and get sanctified by the truth. I love, I've loved my time being here and fellowshipping with all of you and looking at the word together, being sanctified by the truth together. But that's just point one. That's important, but we've got to move on to point two. This fellowship that you guys have is just the preparation. It's just the huddle. If you ever play or watch football, the huddle is important, but the huddle's not the game. The huddle's important to, to gather up your team. You don't just go out there and kind of do whatever you want, but you gather your team together. You get some instructions from the quarterback. You get some direction. You strategize for how you're going to win this game. Uh, you might even encourage each other in the huddle. Hey, you dropped the ball this time. Don't worry. I'm giving it to you again. You'll get them. Take it to the end zone. But the huddle is not the game. And the problem is that sometimes we as Christians spend all our time in the huddle. And we never go out in the game. Uh, the huddle is here. The game is out there. And so, yes, encourage one another, fellowship one another, strategize for how to evangelize better, but also get out there and play the game. Get out there and fulfill the mission that we've been called to. So, uh, let's move on to some practical applications. When it comes to being in the world, but not of it. But once we're in the world, the sphere of our mission. Uh, how do we accomplish the mission? I, I have eight practical applications. You don't need to follow all of them. In fact, if you try, you'll probably get overwhelmed, but maybe one or two will resonate with you and you can apply that to your life. Number one, <coughs> love Jesus more. Actually, you, should, you probably all should do this one. Love Jesus more. In some ways, this whole weekend would be unnecessary if we loved Jesus more. You see, the deeper our conviction that we're saved by the blood of Christ, the more we're going to evangelize. Uh, the deeper our joy over our own salvation, the more we'll evangelize. The deeper we fall in love with Jesus who saved us, the more we're going to want to tell others that they can have a relationship with Jesus just like the one that we have. You never have to force someone to talk about someone they love. They do it all the time. Ask one of the married people in here about their spouse. They'll talk your ear off. They'll write you an essay if you want. How do you tell if a guy likes a girl? He doesn't stop talking about her. He might even be in small group and ask all the small groupies about her and get into trouble later. Can't stop talking about her. So you naturally talk about the one you love. And if you love Jesus, you're going to naturally talk about him with not just Christians, but also non-Christians. Uh, we even talk naturally a lot about our computer, if we really like it. You guys ever meet a Mac person? Mac people are evangelists. <laughs> when I use my Dell around them, I feel like I'm in sin. I feel like I need to repent. And so when you love someone dearly, or even something dearly, you'll overflow in talking about them or it. And so, read the word, uh, pray hard, 
listen to good Christian songs, Christ-centered songs, and ignite this passion for Jesus himself. And watch a desire to evangelize overflow out of your heart. Number two, find people interesting. Find people interesting because they are. A thousand interesting things have happened to each and every one of you. You could pick some random person off the street and you would be captivated for three hours just listening to stories about their past. And for some people, they don't have many friends and they don't have many people who find them interesting. For some people, no one finds them interesting. What if you did? What if you found them interesting and took the time to listen to their story? They might be so appreciative of that and thus so willing to listen to your story as well. Number three, value friendship itself. Don't just value the opportunities to share the gospel, though, of course, those are the most valuable, but before that, value the friendship as well. Friendship is a good gift from God. Uh, There is great value in having a friend, both Christian and non-Christian. You can learn from someone with a different background and different experiences, No matter who they are, they have something to teach you about life. They can challenge you to grow as a person. And the more friends you have, the more you'll learn to be a good friend. The more you'll learn to be loyal and caring and compassionate. You'll learn how to have someone's back. Not to mention all the laughs that you'll share. The experiences you'll share. Friendship itself is a really, really good thing. Friends are the best. Even friends that are non-Christians. Sometimes non-Christian friends can be especially helpful to you because they challenge you and provoke you and think so differently uh, that you don't get from people at church. And so if you learn to, to place a high premium on friends, You're going to pursue friends all around you, including non-Christians, and as you do that, you're going to find that you're going to have more open doors for the gospel. And if you get good at friendship, then you're not just going to make new friends, you're going to make good friends, friends that you really love and they really love you, friends that you trust and they really trust you, and trust is so important. If they trust you completely, if they know that you love them and you are only going to do the best for them and you are only going to say what's best for them, they're going to give you the microphone. Uh, They're going to give you their eyes, open up their ears, put their butts on the chair and listen to you. But that starts with friendship. Uh, So value friendship itself. 
listen to J.I. Packer speak of the importance of friendships in evangelism. You are not usually justified in choosing the subject of conversation with another till you have already begun to give yourself to him in friendship and establish a relationship with him in which he feels that you respect him, are interested in him, and are treating him as a human being and not just some kind of case. Packer again, the right to talk intimately to another person about, about the Lord Jesus Christ has to be earned. And you earn it by convincing him that you are his friend and that you really care about him. Number four, adjust your expectations. Adjust your expectations. Haters going to hate. And sinners going to sin. Uh, if you think that you can be in the world and try to befriend non-Christians without hearing some cussing, without hearing some crude and dirty jokes, uh, without being exposed to worldly ideas, uh, without being exposed to, to pompous arrogance, uh, bragging, complaining, then you need to adjust your expectations. These are the kinds of people that we're trying to reach. That's the mission field. Imagine going on a hike where you know it's raining, and so the trail is going to be really, really muddy. Now, what are you going to do to prepare? Uh, you're going to wear shoes you don't really care about. You're going to maybe wear boots that will protect you from the mud. You're going to wear clothes that you don't mind getting dirty, maybe even clothes that you don't mind throwing out afterwards. And so you're going into the world, and you're going to get muddy, so adjust your expectations, and if you think that it's going to be clean out there, then you're going to be as frustrated as if you're all dressed up for a wedding and going hiking in the mud. But then number five, choose the environment. If you're getting a little nervous at this point, and you're worried about being influenced by sin, that's a good thing, because there is always that potential that you will be influenced by their sin when you hang out with them. So, a big solution is to choose the environment where you hang out with them. Don't be in a place where there's going to be a lot of sin, and you're going to be tempted to join them in their sin. Don't be in a place where you're not going to be able to have a conversation with them to develop the friendship, and if the Lord opens the door, talk about spiritual things and share the gospel. Instead, proactively choose a place where there's little to no chance of dragging you into their sin and where you can develop this relationship. Uh, this is why I tell the college students that you don't need to join a frat to reach the frat boys. And I would say to you guys, you don't need to, to say yes to the invitations that they give you to go to these places that are shady and will tempt you to sin. The reason you don't have to do that to reach them is because they eat lunch too. They eat dinner too. They play basketball too. They like to go on hikes too. They like to go bowling too. They like to go to Warriors games too. 
Uh, They have kids and like to bring them to the park too. Uh, There's all kinds of environments that are much safer that you can be proactive in choosing and taking them with you so that you're not tempted to sin and you can have a productive gospel conversation with them. Number six, pursue a hobby. Pursue a hobby or pick up an old hobby that you've abandoned, preferably one that you can do with someone else or at least one that you can talk about with someone else. And if you're able to do that, uh, then you're not only going to have fun with this new hobby or reigniting an old one, but you'll also have this automatic connection with people, hopefully non-Christians, and an automatic friendship, a shared interest with them. Number seven, be really nice. If you don't know where to start, if you have no non-Christian friends and you're not sure how you're going to apply what we've talked about this weekend, then just try number seven. Just try being really, really nice to everyone around you. Uh, be really nice to your coworkers, your neighbors, the servers at the restaurants where you eat frequently. Uh, go out of your way to be nice. Invite them over to your place. Invite them over for a barbecue. Invite them over for dinner. Uh, bake some treats and bring it to work. Uh, drop by the donut shop before work and bring everyone breakfast. Uh, write them a card on their birthday. Hey, write them a card just because, just because you want to show that you care about them. So go out of your way to be really, really nice to people and see what kind of conversations will start. See what kind of doors God will open when people see a testimony of a really nice Christian. Number eight, evangelize with others. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Hear the unity in this passage, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. Why? Why think and believe the same? Why have the same passions and convictions? The end of the verse, so that you can strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Uh, We share the same passion. We share the same conviction so that we can link arms together and strive together to bring the gospel into the world so that others will have the faith of the gospel, so that others will believe. Paul was very much a team player. He was rarely alone. Even in prison, he had friends with him. In the book of Acts, which accounts Paul's missionary journeys, you guys have gone through this, you can pay attention to how many times Luke writes, we, we, we. Paul was usually evangelizing with a team. He was with Luke, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Titus. Jesus sent the 70 disciples out two by two. And so we can evangelize together, maybe meet non-Christians together. If you have a non-Christian friend, invite them to church and introduce them to your friends here. Invite them out to hang out with your Christian friends as you do fun things together. There's multiple advantages 
of doing this, of evangelizing together, not trying to take the burden all on your own. Uh, First of all, it's pretty scary to make a new friend who's not a Christian. But if you do this with a fellow Christian, it can be easier. Secondly, evangelizing together strengthens our testimonies. Uh, If we do evangelism on our own, and you're the only Christian in that person's life, there's really no opportunity to show that non-Christian what it's like for Christians to fellowship together. They have no opportunity to see what it's like that Christians love each other. And John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so if you surround this non-Christian with other Christians, including yourself, then you'll have the opportunity to show them, be a testimony to them of the kind of love that you have for each other, a love that only can come through gospel transformation. A third advantage is that there's some built-in accountability. If you evangelize to someone on your own, it's very easy to quit. But if you have someone with you, uh, they'll keep pushing you to further the relationship with that person and evangelize to them. And we also talked about being careful not to be of the world, being influenced by the world. And so maybe you will slip and, and be so into evangelism that you start to sin with them and you'll have an accountability partner to say, no, no, let's pull back a little bit. Let's take it easy a little bit and, and, and maybe adjust the environment even more so you'll have some accountability there. And then fourth, there's a greater chance that the unbeliever will click with one of you. So you might have a friend, but maybe you just don't really get along with them. You don't really click with them as well. Introduce them to a few of your Christian friends, and there's a good chance that he'll click with one of them because of a shared interest, because of a similar background. And maybe you won't have the opportunity and bridge to share the gospel with them, but your other Christian friend will. And so there's some great wisdom in doing number eight, trying to evangelize together. Uh, So here's just a few practical applications. Uh, You can think of more on your own, and I hope that you will. I hope that you'll continue to have conversations with each other on how you can take what we learned this weekend uh, into the world and accomplish this mission that we've been given. I want to close with a quote from a historian, Kenneth Scott LaTourette, who from 1938 to 1953 was chairman of the Department of Religion at Yale Divinity School, and he made this observation after gathering all the data about the history of Christianity. Uh, He says this, The chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession or a major part of their occupation, but men and women who earned their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those whom they met in a natural fashion. Uh, Let's pray that we'll be men and women like that. Uh, Father, help us to be these men and women uh, who take initiative to Meet non-Christians, befriend them, develop a heart for them, a deep, deep love for them, and share the gospel with them. 
and share the gospel with them again and plead with them to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, we have a, a tall order from your word uh, to step outside where we're comfortable and to be uncomfortable in the world. And so we come to you now asking for help. Uh, we come confidently before the throne of grace, uh, knowing that you are gracious and will give help in the time of need. Uh, to give us this strength that we could never muster up on our own, uh, a courage that we could never have on our own. Uh, so I pray that, you, that, that we would be even shocked with just how bold we can be for the gospel when you are undergirding our efforts and when you are right by our side strengthening us. I pray for this church, uh, that they would sharpen each other in this area, that they would poke and prod and encourage each other in this area, and that they would reach Fremont and reach the surrounding communities for Jesus Christ and be faithful to do so till their dying breath. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.